Greetings. Welcome back to HM Live. I trust that you are having a blessed week. This is the week that I'll spend a bit of time just talking with you about leadership development and leadership training. As always, I remind you that those notes, as well as a student handout, are available to you there online. In our last session, I talked with you about leaders who kind of fall over their own feet. They kind of get in their own way, so to speak. Up. Um, I want to take this from a little different perspective this week, and I'm going to dive right into it. This is um, almost an introduction to some other things that we'll be talking about as, as we come together. Um, I, I want to talk to you about what it means to be an extraordinary leader and what extraordinary leadership looks like. And in reality, you can uh, take each of the things that we'll discuss and kind of um, evaluate and assess your your own leadership, where you're at in the context of uh, of leadership. There are there there are basically three different levels of leadership. The first is is superficial, and this is where someone is a leader by position. It has to do with posture. It's the name on the door. It's the title. Um, and pretty often somebody who is a leader by position is not really doing much leading, not in the sense of uh, investing themselves or taking other people along with them. Instead, they really are, are more uh, doers. They're getting the job done. Uh, one of the dangers of this particular uh, type of leadership, and, and all of us have been uh, in a position. I'm in a position today, so there is uh, there's nothing wrong with being uh, in a position or having a title. The the danger is for the leader who comes to a place of having positionitis. It's it's more simply about um, having the position and the title than it is in getting the job done. The second level of leadership is the is that of leadership by influence. The the person who is an influential leader looks to do things that will benefit others. Now, this person may be an unknown, but as they continue to invest themselves into uh, people, as time goes by, their influence, even without a position, will supersede that of the person who has the title or who has a position, simply because they're doing things that will influence others. The third level is what we're really going to focus on today, and it is becoming an extraordinary leader. This is unusual. This is uncommon. Um, through the scripture, you can see a number of men who, who this is what they were. David was an uncommon leader. Uh, he affected generations to come. As a matter of fact, we continue to, to read his writings and sing his songs and quote his poetry. David was not just for his generation, but he was for the ages. Uh, Moses uh, impacted and influenced a generation beyond his own. Nehemiah rebuilt Jerusalem in, in 52 days, what others had not been able to accomplish in, in um, over nine decades. Um, they didn't just affect, and here's, here's the key point. These men did not just affect and influence their time, but they impacted the ages to come. 
And that's what I believe that some of you have the ability to do. And again, it's not about having the position. It's not about simply being influential. But it is about seeing beyond today, seeing beyond your own arena, seeing beyond your address, and recognizing that it's the ages to come that we must also influence. I don't know a lot about Greek history, but if you were to ask me to uh, talk about the three leading philosophers of all time, it might well be that I would mention Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. Socrates was an itinerant teacher. He walked from town to town, and as he walked, he would teach, he would talk, uh, he would speak. Nothing that Socrates ever uh, spoke was written down. But in the last years of his teaching, Socrates taught a young man by the name of Plato. Plato would walk along beside him, and Socrates would speak these philosophical principles into his life. Plato took Socrates' material and he wrote it down in a book called The Teaching of Socrates. And then, of course, Plato took those principles that he had gained from Socrates and he invested himself into them, and he took them to another level. And this particular teacher, Plato, uh, is more settled. He is not traveling from place to place. He establishes a school. Eventually, a student in his school... Uh, is an individual by the name of Aristotle. And Aristotle, third generation of this philosophical process, he took the teachings of Plato and he advanced them to another level. Do, do you get the picture here? You've got Aristotle and you've got Plato and you've got Socrates and it is generation stacked upon generation of philosophical principle they affected a generation, and then that generation affected another. As leaders, do we ask ourselves, as a Sunday school teacher, as a pastor, as, as a youth pastor, as a youth worker, do we ask ourselves, how will those who I'm impacting impact the next generation? What's interesting about the story of, of uh Socrates and Plato and Aristotle is that the story doesn't end there because when, when Aristotle, the student of Plato, who had been the student of Socrates, was, uh, was a young man. He, he really was not old himself. He would not have been considered to be of age to be wise. He was 21 years old. But the, uh, the king of Macedonia, who was actually the king of Greece, Philip of Macedonia, became quite concerned about the education of his young son, Alexander. Alexander was 11 years old, and King Philip hired Aristotle for one year to train his young son, Alexander. Eventually, you may have already uh, recognized the names, eventually, Alexander, the 11-year-old, becomes the Alexander the Great of historic significance. Aristotle taught Alexander for one year. He taught him math, and he taught uh, him history. During one of those lessons, Alexander asked his instructor, how many is one? And his teacher realized that this was a teachable moment, and he said, well, I'll tell you what, 
I'll come back tomorrow and we'll talk about how many is one. And so we came back to the next day and led him into a discussion. And Aristotle taught him that the truth was one could be many. The principle being, as he had discovered from his teacher and his teacher from the teacher before him, that one could influence many, that one could impact many, and that one could impact many for ages to come. Later history would declare that Alexander wept because there were no more worlds to conquer, and he was the political influence that set things in process for the ideal situation for the exact moment of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. How many is one? For Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, one was many. How many are you? You say, well, I'm just one. Tell that to a fellow by the name of Paul. Tell that to Timothy, who had been instructed by his Elder, take what I've given you and give it to faithful men who will give it to other faithful men. There is a lineage of wisdom and insight and revival and revelation that can be tracked across history. How many people are you affecting? How many people are you impacting? How many are you influencing? But more important than how many are you impacting and influencing is what will they do? How many is one. The one you're affecting, how many will they affect? How many will they influence? How many will they enhance? There are names that have spoken into my life through the years that will never be on anybody's marquee. There's Ellis Davidson in a youth Sunday school class, and whenever uh, the church guys were getting together to play basketball, would take the time to pick me up and take me and uh, spend time in, the, in that social setting, uh, the power of one. There's Bernice DeVille and Edith Bailey and Laura Faye Bradford, who you in all likelihood will never meet and perhaps will never know. But in their Sunday school class and in their Sunday school ministry, they affected me, they affected others, affected others who are in ministry today. There's a pastor, Titus White, who pastored a country church and then felt compelled of God to leave the settled position and go to West Palm Beach, Florida to start a church. And how many is one? How many can you affect? How many can you impact? What's this issue of extraordinary leadership? Is anybody asking the question, where will this church be ten years from now? anybody asking where we'll be 50 years from now? And I'm not talking about in generalities. I'm not talking about as an organization. I'm, I'm talking about your local church setting. What will have been done? What will have been accomplished? Who will its leaders be 20 years from now? I read the other day that, that uh, it was important that we start defining the potential leaders of the future church even before they enter into their teens. While they're still less than than 12 years old, that we figure out who they are and that we begin to invest wisely into them, strategically into them for the 
for the face of the future. What is that group going to be doing? Is there somewhere in this audience an Alexander who is being taught that one can be many, that your investment in one can become a multiplying effect that will impact the many. Let me just give you uh, several, several distinctions for an individual who becomes an extraordinary leader. The first is this. The extraordinary leader is unique within themselves. And here's the uniqueness. They have a sense of mission. They have a sense of who they are. And that has to do with their worth and their strengths and their weaknesses. And they have a sense of what they want to accomplish in life. And they don't get off track chasing things that are, that are insignificant. This, this uh, person, unique within themselves, they're, they're not egocentric. They're not egomaniacs. If somebody is parked in their uh, reserve parking space, they don't go ballistic. Uh, they, they just want to make things better regardless of who gets the credit. They're unique within themselves. There's, there, there's a sense of reality. There's no airs. There's no pretension. Um, they're, they're unique. They're comfortable in their own skin. They're not trying to be something they're not. The, the second thing that I see about this extraordinary leader is that they tend to be results-oriented rather than activity-based. Uh, Paul was such a leader. Remember him writing, this one thing I do. It was pressing toward the mark. He, he, he had focused in his mind that there were results he wanted to attain and, and things he wanted to accomplish. And it, it wasn't simply about being busy with activity. I had Brother Tenney ask me uh, several years ago about a particular situation. And he said, tell me about this particular deal. He said, what is the fruit that remains, and he got me studying that passage in Scripture that addresses that, the fruit that lasts. There's some key result areas. There's some things that we need to see as our priority in the work of God. What is our productivity? How is it that we get ministry accomplished? And I'm not talking about getting a good Sunday school class accomplished. I'm not talking about getting a good sermon or a good song. I'm how do we get ministry, the service of people, how do we get that accomplished? Productivity. The second key result area is what is our service? We used to talk about, uh, and this probably is not a, the best of analogies, but what is the customer base of the church? The, uh, the lost souls, the saint who is struggling. What, what are we providing them? We are in a servanthood role, and we are to serve our community, and we are to serve the people who are struggling that are part of the fellowship. Third thing that is key is the issue of stewardship or finance. Uh, there are no free lunches. Everything has to find some approach to, taking its, to paying its way. I, I, I dealt at times with people pastorally, people who had great and grand ideas, but those ideas were not rooted in the reality of uh, coming up with the resources to get the job done. 
you have to connect it. It's a key result area. You, you can't outrun your resources. Um, then there's the, the key result area of improvement. I, I think that we need to have in our mind that every ministry needs to be improving. Every ministry needs to be moving forward. Every ministry needs to be advancing and progressing. Uh, simply because we were successful and have been effective with some things doesn't mean they stay that way. The world is moving past us. I read an article this week that, that again reminded us we, we can't out, uh, we can't out blitz the world. I mean, you don't have enough technology in any of our churches to outdo all of the bells and whistles that the world is able to put together. We can improve our service. We can improve our ministry. We can improve the care we're providing. We can improve our communication. Am I a better preacher than I was a year ago? Am I being more effective as a teacher? Am I reading something? Am I studying something that would help me to improve myself? And the fifth is the growth of people. And I'm not talking about numerical growth here. I'm talking about are we developing people? Are we growing people? Are we taking them to another level? Um, one of my most significant moments as a pastor, and looking back now, uh, was teaching a home Bible study to Jeremy Rapp, who is now a full-time staff evangelist with the local church there, that I had pastored for a number of years. His role is to teach home Bible studies. I've watched him grow. I, I've, I've watched him develop. I've watched him become. In that key result area, what do you see happening in the people in your church? Are, 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 are people growing? Are people moving forward? What is the organizational climate? That's, that's a sixth issue. And there are two things here that become important. What is the structure? And you cannot run a Sunday school class of 25 like you can run a Sunday school class of 8. So there's got to be structural change. There's got to be organizational change. And there has to be an atmosphere of morale, of momentum, of positive things taking place. And then the seventh is there, there need to be fresh, innovative ideas. Um, you are involved with the creator of the universe. He is interested in what you're doing. He can give you ideas that will work. And what I'm observing is that as I travel, there are great ideas being put to use in our local churches. As a matter of fact, the best ideas in, in any setting always come from the front line of having to get the job done. By the way, when you start talking about fresh and innovative ideas, you need to realize that all of us have some sacred cows. There's some things out there that are kind of untouchable. I read a book some years ago. The title was Sacred Cows Make Good Hamburger. And sometimes you just have to kind of you just kind of have to have that attitude that there's something fresh that God is wanting to do and something else is going to go the way. It's not how fancy things are. It's not how smooth they are. It's the end result. The football field, the team doesn't score any points for style. It's not about how nice their uniforms look. It's not about how smooth the play looked. It's not about any of that. It's about getting that football across the goal line. And they have to understand 
The same is true for us. I, I can remember, and this may help somebody, I can remember folks who they could sing a great song. They did it with style. They had a flair about it. Man, it was top shelf. Every note was just right. But there was not a spirit of praise. There was not a spirit of worship. And it didn't minister to people. And it did not minister to the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to know that we're scoring points. We need to know that we're advancing this thing. And, by the way, talking about this particular key result area, you can't expect to manage something that is growing. You can't expect to manage tomorrow by doing today what you did yesterday. You have to figure out how we're going to take this to the next level. Change is going to come. The difference between an extraordinary leader and a leader who doesn't get much done, that second leader is busy with busy work, but they're not engaged in the long-term realization of we've got to build line upon line, precept upon precept. They don't plod their way forward step by step by step by step, taking care of all of the key result areas that have to be worked through. There are great situations where that men are doing significant things, but they're going to be hampered because they have failed to address the key result area of stewardship and finance. There are others where that the money's there, but there's not the people growth there. I, I hope this is helping somebody today. You can be an extraordinary leader, but it's not going to be just by accident. It's going to be by putting these things. Third thing, and I hurry, is the extraordinary leader evaluates what he's doing with a desire to serve people. We have to shepherd people. We have to lead people. We have to care for people. Leaders who are served, if you're a leader in the local church, you have people that you need to serve. They don't serve you, you serve them. This that we collectively are involved in, my brother or my sister, it's about people. It's about individual people. And we serve those individual people. The fourth thing that I see in extraordinary, extraordinary leaders is that they release the power in other people. They are comfortable with others making decisions. They delegate to them. They release them. They empower them. They let them have a chance to make decisions and to grow. And they stand beside them and behind them even when they perhaps make bad choices. Filth. And the last thing I note is this. These extraordinary leaders eventually come to grips, even if they don't know how to describe them, even if they don't know what to name them, with seven key functions of leadership. First of all, they understand planning. It's putting some steps in place. Secondly, they have a recognition of organization. It's where you put your plans in some practical sequential orders, timelines. It's in the business world, Gantt charts. It's timing. Thirdly, it's staffing. Who's going to get it done? And how are they going to get it done? When are they going to get it done? The fourth thing is leading. This is bringing your influence to bear. You cannot influence all of the people all of the time. You have to be direct and connect with people.
who can make a difference. And leadership has both an upward and a downward aspect. And by the way, sometimes we all have to work toward influencing those who lead us. The next thing I see is communication. There's vision casting, there's challenging, there is direction, there is communication. The sixth is decision making. This is key. Problems come and you're there to make a decision. If you make good decisions, it enhances your leadership. You become a troubleshooter. And then finally is a word that we don't much like. It's controlling. But this is where there's accountability. There's reporting procedures. It's all of that. You can be an extraordinary leader. I challenge you. Print those notes off. And there's much more in the teacher's notes than what I shared. Print those notes off and then just go down and through each of these key areas for a leader. Why don't you evaluate yourself on a scale of 1 to 10 and see how well you're doing. And then begin to think about how you could work to enhance. We don't just need position leaders, nor do we need leaders who simply will influence those around them. But I'm talking to people who it is intended of God that you be an extraordinary leader. Our generation, the generation to come, and the generation of my grandchildren, depends on there being some extraordinary leaders who understand that one can be many. And you can make an impact in time and in eternity. I encourage your questions. If you have thoughts or observations or amens or woe is me's regarding the things I've tried to share with you today, these principles really can work. I want you to apply them and put them to use in, in your life. I remind you again, the greatest things happening in North America are happening in home missions.